good to see you here this morning. For those of you who are visiting uh, for a kind of a reunion type thing with crew in Ocean City, glad that you are here. Great to see you. Um, Bob and Jill Foos, the director there, is uh, very close friends with my wife and I. We, we had great times together when we were living in Los Angeles, uh, encouraging them, being encouraged. Great brother and sister in the Lord. So welcome. Glad that you're here. For those of you who are students who go to church here, and for those of you who are non-students who go to church here, I really want to encourage you, for real, after the service, go check out that membership class if you're not a member. It's, it's, it's right before lunch. It won't last very long. Just kind of learn more about what's going on with our church. doesn't mean you have to commit to joining. I just want you to learn more and see what membership's all about. So not a big commitment just to go to that after this service. So just giving you that heads up. All right. I recently read a story from a, a book I've been reading called One Way Love. And in this story, it talks about a guy named John. And John has the honor of being named the worst person in the world by a popular website. Now, this is how John got the title of the worst person in the world. He was interacting with this woman on a a popular dating website, Match.com. I'm not sure how these things work, but this is how the interaction went. So the the, the woman, I guess, I don't know, winked at him. I I don't know. It's just... Out of my lake here. So, winked at him uh, to get his attention, say that she had some interest in him. And so, so John, he, he responded back to her coming on to him. And what he wanted is he was fishing for some more information on her. Specifically, he wanted to know what she looked like because he believed that women in the past had misled him about the, their looks. And so, he was asking these pretty bold questions about, you know, what she looks like. And she was very turned off, as you can imagine, by this, by the arrogance of him. And so she just cut him off. Now, instead of moving on, John, he decided that he was going to write a response to her, cutting him off. And this has given him the title, Worst Person in the World. This is what he said in response to his rejection. Listen to this. I think you forget how this works. You hit on me. And therefore, you have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. I am a trainer on the side, and I'm headed to the gym in 26 minutes. So the next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so you don't blow it with the next Ivy League grad, Mensa member, can leg press over 1,200 pounds. (laughs) This is true. Has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense has an MBA from the top school in the country, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures. Oh, that's right. There aren't any more of those. So that's his response to rejection. He justifies himself, how awesome he is. And and the author of One Way Love said that all of us have a tendency toward self-justification, not just in the face of 
rejection or when we're criticized, but it, it tends to happen in a lot of areas of life where basically we says, let me tell you about my performance and let me tell you how awesome I am so that you will love and accept me. And the mentality is it's performance coming before acceptance. It's performance comes before acceptance. And we're all very familiar with this. Maybe you're single and you, you want to date. You want a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And you're thinking in your head, hey, you know, I work out. I have a great personality. I go to church. I read the Bible. How come someone will not ask me out? And then self-justification really can blow up in marriage, too, where if someone feels like they have to earn the one another's attention, where the guy says, you know, honey, I go to work, I make money, I take care of the kids, and yet you're still not giving me the time of day and showing me any love. And it, and it can happen in our work and in school. We feel like we have to keep our performance level up really high so that we can feel accepted and loved. And, and I, can, I can say this to a Northwestern um, crowd. I don't know if I know some of you are from other schools and you might not get this. But at Northwestern, like I say, hey, how do you feel when you get a B? And if you're from another school, you're like, ah, B's pretty good. No, but like from Northwestern, like how do you feel... In your identity. I, I talked to my son. He's in high school. And, he, and when he gets discouraged about his grades, I, I, just, I just tell him really, really plainly. I say, son, you are no longer loved by the Lord. <laughs> and, and then I add to that. And I say, son, you are no longer accepted by me. So I just kind of rub it in. really, Because that's, that's what you feel. We feel like, our identity is connected to, to what our success and if a bad job evaluation or our bad grades, our identity gets kind of messed up and we feel like, man, we're not being accepted. And so we're very familiar with these forms of self-justification to prove our worth, to prove that we're valuable so that we get accepted. But the deal is, is that whether you think it or not, sometimes that's how we can view our relationship with God. That if we perform right, God will accept us. And if we do not perform to certain standards, then God, well, he's, he's not going to like us that day. Maybe if we can get it together the next day, he'll like us. And, and what tends to happen is that it, people have even formed religions on performance, that if you do the right performance, you will be accepted. If you do not hit the standards, you will not be accepted by God. And this is what we've been talking about for the past two or three weeks, and we're, we're back at it again today, back in the book of Romans. Let's go ahead and turn to Romans. We're in Romans 2 again. And we're in this portion of Romans where Paul is laying out a lot of bad news. And I know some of you are getting kind of discouraged in church these days. You're like, man, are we ever going to talk about something positive because it's all this negative sin and condemnation and hell. But you know, remember, the, the bad news comes first and the bad news it shows us why the good news really is good news. So we've seen uh, the Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 through 32. We saw them breaking bad. Remember, they were, they were falling into pagan sins and sins committed under the condemnation of God. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, thought, well, we're not breaking bad. We're actually breaking good and getting better. But Paul's like, no, you're not. You're just as bad as the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are both under the condemnation and culpable for God, and his wrath will be poured out on them. So apart from Jesus Christ, we are all guilty before God. That's, that's where we're at in the book of Romans right now. 
Now, specifically, Paul is exposing the self-righteous Jew. And we talked about self-righteousness two, two weeks ago. And, and Paul is using this technique of a diatribe. Now, what, what I mean by that is that he's interacting, interacting with an imaginary opponent, and he's letting the church overhear this, this interaction as they are kind of going at one another. Now, what Paul is doing with his imaginary opponent, he's saying, you Jew, you are sinful, you're guilty, you're under God's condemnation just as much as the Gentile. Now, what the Jew's going to do, his imaginary opponent, what he's going to do is he's going to go into full beast mode of self-justification. Have you ever done that before? When someone criticizes you and points something out, rather than accepting it and changing, you go into full beast mode of self-justification. You will not be denied because you are absolutely right and others must know it. You're unstoppable in your self-justification. That's what we're going to see here. That's what we often see in our own lives. So let's go Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The Jews like, look, Paul, I can't be wrong because I have the law. I have the Ten Commandments and the rest of the commandments. God gave me the law, and I have the ability to keep this law. And I am at such a great advantage that I have the law, and I go and I instruct Gentiles. I guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. I'm an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children. Uh, This is what the Jew assumed. The Jew assumed that their privilege and their performance equaled acceptance. Privilege plus performance equals acceptance. So they have the privilege of the law, and then they performed the law, they relied upon the law, and then in turn, God accepted them. That's the formula for the Jew, the self-righteous Jew, the self-justifying Jew. And now many of you can understand this. So this past year... 27,533 students applied to Northwestern with only 2,135 enrolling as freshmen. Now, I'm not going to speak for some of the freshmen in here, or maybe for those of you who are upperclassmen, maybe this is your story, and it's not a bad thing, but some of you may have been accepted because you had a certain heritage or background. Let's just say that your parents went to Northwestern, maybe some of you, your grandparents went to Northwestern and they were great students and they had high achievements and then maybe they had connections and you have the privilege of going to Northwestern. Not a bad thing. But at the same time, you, I mean, you can't be a slacker and go there, right? So you had to crank out the work in high school and now you're in Northwestern, you have to continue to crank out the work to stay in because what's going on is that privilege plus performance equals acceptance. And that's the mindset of the Jew. We have the law from God. We perform the law from God. We are accepted by God. 
And, and this is the mindset that the Apostle Paul used to have before God intervened in his life and brought him to Christ. Paul used to think this way. Let me prove it to you. Let me put this passage up for you. It comes from the book of Philippians. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. This is Paul talking. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, now you can see Paul's formula here. He's saying, okay, I have privilege. I'm circumcised on the eighth day from Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. But he also has his performance. He's a Pharisee. He holds the letter of the law and creates more. He's a persecutor of the church, and he's blameless. So for Paul, he has the privilege, and he has the performance, and that equals acceptance by God. So Paul understands where his opponent is coming from. But Paul knows that that formula won't work. He knows it won't work, and the reason why he knows it won't work is because, get this, all right, you ready for this? There is a discrepancy between preaching and performance. There is a discrepancy about what he believes are the standards of the Ten Commandments and what he can actually do and perform. So that formula will not work. The privilege plus the performance will not equal acceptance by God is because there's always going to be this discrepancy between what you say and what you do, and that will expose you as a sinner. And that's what he's trying to show right now to the Jew. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what the Jew would do, they would say, I have the law. They would wield the law and they would try to teach the law in their mind and hearts to the Gentiles. But the problem is they did not practice what they preached. And Paul is going to prove his point. So he takes three of the Ten Commandments. And he says, okay, let's do, this little, let's do this little drill to show you the discrepancy. Now, he's not going to talk about all the Jews. He's going to the extremes. He says, okay, so you say that people must not steal. But you know you do. You say that people must not commit adultery. But you know you do. You say that people must not rob temples, and though you may not go in and rob a temple, you know that you're profiting from idolatry. Someone else steals it. Maybe you're a middleman. You pass it on. You're profiting from idolatry. You're just as guilty as the Gentiles. In fact, you say you have the law and keep it, so you are dishonoring God before the Gentiles. There is a huge discrepancy from what you say you believe, Jews, to what you actually do. There's a huge gap. But we're, we're believers, right? So we follow Jesus. But here's the deal. Even for those of us who follow Jesus, there is a discrepancy between the standards of God and what we actually do, right? All of us hopefully acknowledge this discrepancy where we believe the Ten Commandments, but we see that we fall short of the Ten Commandments. And what that discrepancy is supposed to make us do, get this, my friends, it's not supposed to make you get up here and like, put on a show and act like you keep all the law perfectly. Now, the discrepancy is to make you say, oh my, I need someone who has kept the standards perfectly. And who is that? 
is Jesus. So he kept the law perfectly. We trusted him. We believe in him. He's the one that kept the standards without blame, right? We trusted him. But get this. Even as believers now, we humble ourselves and we say, we are not perfect. We have areas we need to work on. There are discrepancies between what we say and what we believe and what we actually do. So we want to repent. We want to find forgiveness. We want to find grace to grow, right? That's what we want as Christians. But the problem is, many of us are proud. And so when we get called on something, or someone points something out, what do we do? Well, we justify ourselves. We say, well, we're not that bad. It's really no big deal. And this happens all the time, right? It especially happens in in the relationship of marriage. I talked about one of the number one problems in marriage a couple weeks ago is self-righteousness. We're just self-righteous. We we look down on the other spouse because we are better than them. But one of the uh, connected problems is self-justification so that when someone calls us on something, our spouse, we say, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. We are not in the wrong here. So, so let's say, for example, here's, a, here's some common marital problems that may happen. For those of you who are married, and one day when you get married, you probably have the same problems. It goes like this. The wife comes up to the husband, and she says, hey, she's being all humble and gentle like all the wives in here. She's saying, I say, saying husband, I, I don't feel like you're connecting with me. I don't feel like you're, you're listening to me. Now, what the husband is supposed to do is say, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, he's supposed to humble himself, be full of grace. But often what guys do is they go into full beast mode of self-justification. And they're like, hey, I work, okay? And when I come home, I'm tired, and I still have to fix stuff around here that you didn't fix. And then I have to clean some stuff up that you didn't clean up, and then I need to unwind. So I'm sorry you're not feeling connected with me. That sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. You're like, yeah, we just did that yesterday. All right. Well, here's another, here's another common issue, all right? So a guy comes up to his wife, and he says, you know, he's being all humble and gentle. He'll say, honey, you know, I just, I just don't feel like there's this romance. There's no more romance in our marriage. Where's the romance gone? And the wife, rather than being humble and gentle and interacting on the grace, she goes into full beast mode, right? She's like, you want romance? You want romance? Well, I got to work too. And when I get home, I got to take care of these kids and I got to cook and I got to clean up after you. There's your romance. So there's a gap, right? Here are the vows they took at the altar. Right? Remember those, remember those vows? You're like, I don't remember those. You should go revisit those. You took these vows, and this is what you actually do. And so there's a discrepancy, right? There's a gap. And what we're supposed to do is say, that, that's where the gospel fills in the gap, right? The gospel, like grace and forgiveness and mercy and change and humility. That's what we're supposed to do. And a marriage will not thrive in an environment where the discrepancy is ignored and self-justification fills its place. And just like a marriage will not thrive, your Christian life will not thrive if you're consistently explaining away your shortcomings, if you're consistently explaining away areas where you're in habitual sin. If you're just explaining those away, you're not going to thrive and grow in the Christian life. And this brings us to some good news. Some good news of forgiveness and change. And this is going to be awesome. This is kind of the last point. Let me put it up for you. God's performance 
precedes our performance. God's performance precedes our performance. What I'm about to share with you is some serious truth in God's word to root you deep in the truth of his love. You need to put some effort into this right now because it's going to take some work. This is not, hey, God loves you, and you go, okay, whatever. This is like, let's see this really in the Bible. This is really some serious stuff here. So, so try to track with these remaining verses, okay? Start with verse 25. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, on, on Thursday night when I did, I did family worship with my family, uh, I talked about the details of circumcision. I am sorry, I will not do that here, all right? Look it up, all right? But the circum... We're not going to talk about that, but, but the physical circumcision of the covenant that God made with his people is kind of like a, a wedding ring, like a wedding ring. It's like we're in this relationship together, and it's like a wedding ring between God and his chosen people. And Paul says, you know what? Circumcision is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, it's just like uncircumcision. It's pointless. It's like the, a wedding ring on the finger of an adulteress. It's pointless. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't go together. So if the Jew says that he's relying on the law for his performance and acceptance, but the problem is he fails to keep the law. And so what? There's a massive discrepancy. So Paul says, you know what? Your, your circumcision, it's like uncircumcision. It's pointless because you're not keeping the law. Now, try to stay with this argument because Paul says something similar to the church in Galatia in chapter 5 of Galatians. This is really, really powerful kind of putting these two together. Galatians 5, verses 2 and 3 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. I'm trying to understand this. What he's doing here is he's trying to correct a false teaching in Galatia that, hey, we've got to get circumcision to be accepted by God. We've got to keep the law to be accepted by God, and that's opposed to grace. And he says that if you accept circumcision, you're saying, I'm going to try to buy into the whole law. Then Paul says this, you have to keep, did you notice it? The whole law. You have to keep the whole law. Now, why would he say that? I mean, they have the Ten Commandments and the, and, and, and the rest of the law, and Paul says you've got to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. If you want to go with the circumcision route, okay, you have to keep it all perfect. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would he make the argument that if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be accepted by God, you have to keep the whole law perfectly? Well, why would he say that? Well, here's the deal. This is going to be kind of a theological explanation. The Jewish Messiah has come. The Messiah has shown up on this earth, and Jesus is the only way to be forgiven through his sacrifice. Now, if the Jews want to live under the Old Covenant, if they want to live under the Old Testament, the old way of doing things, then they have to do it perfectly. Now, why would a Jew have to keep the Old Testament perfectly? Because their sacrifices are null and void. They're passe. They've passed off the scene. Once Jesus came on the scene as the perfect sacrifice, all those old sacrifices were, in a sense, nullified. And see, the law was meant, the Ten Commandments were meant to reveal sin in you and in me and in the Jews so they would come to the Messiah and Jesus and find forgiveness. But what the Jews are here, doing here, they're saying, we got the law, we're going to keep it. And Paul says, you want to try to keep it? You have to keep it perfectly or you will not be accepted. So your circumcision is pointless because you do not keep 
the law. So he, Paul is just hammering. He's hammering in the book of Romans this concept that performance equals acceptance. He's going to hit it again and again. Performance equals acceptance. He's going to crush that. Continue on, verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Who's he talking about here? There's somebody who's uncircumcised and yet keeps the law. Well, he's talking about the Gentile believer. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, a work happens where they are enabled by grace to obey the law. They have someone who kept the law perfectly in their place. That is Jesus. And now they're enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the law. And so it demonstrates they have a relationship with God, even though they're not circumcised. It's just, wow, they are keeping the precepts of the law. They're bearing the fruit of a Christian. Verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised, that's a Gentile believer, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. (laughs) This is amazing. So the Jews thought at judgment day they were going to take part in judging the Gentiles. But it's going to be flipped. Paul says, you know what? Those Gentiles who are now believers are going to put you to shame even though you have circumcision and you have the law because they have a different work done to them that comes from God. And then he explains it, 28 and 29. It's one of the most important verses in chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, here it is, is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. These are some of the most offensive words a Jew could ever hear, that their Jewishness and their circumcision will not get them in good with God. Physical circumcision and outward Jewishness and Racially Jewishness are not the ultimate point. Paul says the ultimate point here is circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. I'm about to teach you one of the most important truths in the Old Testament. The Old Testament looked forward to a day when God's spirit would circumcise the hearts of his people so that they would inwardly obey from a changed heart. That they would have cut inside of them. The ruling power of sin would be cut. And now the Holy Spirit lives within them, empowering them to obey the Word of God. And in Christ, at the coming of the Holy Spirit, that day is now. What Paul is getting at over and over and over and over again is that it's the new heart, it's the circumcised heart that leads to acceptance and to obedience, not the prior performance. So let me put it this way. Here's the point. God's performance precedes our performance. God's performance precedes our performance. When we talk about the performance of God, of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection to forgive us our sins. But the performance talked about in this passage right here is the performance of the Holy Spirit coming in, changing our hearts, 
taking out the heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, circumcising a heart, making our hearts malleable and moldable. So now they're no longer hard, but they want to obey. That is a prior work of God. And if you mess this order up, if you say that your performance leads to God's acceptance, you will mess up the gospel every time. The ultimate truth in the gospel is saying it this way, is that acceptance comes before performance. Acceptance comes before performance. And if you've grown up in church, you've never heard this before, this is, your, this is, this is freedom to you. The gospel is a gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in the performance of Christ alone. It's not about you jumping through ho- hoops, doing good works, pulling off these tricks, and then one day, hopefully, God will accept you. Good luck with that. It's a gospel of grace in Christ alone and his performance alone. And this should really impact our lives every single day in the way we relate to God and we relate, we relate to one another. Uh, let me just kind of... Put it to you like this. I said I was reading this book, One Way Love, and a really good book. You might want to check it out sometime. But he tells a story in there of two high school students applying to get into college. Now, for those of you who are young, just reflect back. And those of you who are old, try to reflect back. Remember how stressful it was when you were in high school trying to put it all together to get accepted for college? I mean, it's a very stressful time. Like, are you going to get accepted? Are you going to get in? Uh, are you going to have to, I don't know, not get in. And so he tells a story of, of two guys, best friends, applying to get into the same college. One of them was accepted. The other was deferred. So they're still waiting on this final decision of the other best friend. Now, what happened is this one, as they were waiting for his friend to be accepted, their lives, now in high school, they were doing a lot of the same things, but their lives kind of went on a different trajectory, okay? So the guy who was uh, deferred, not accepted right away, he had to crank things out, man. He had to work hard to keep up his grades. He took on some extra, <laughs> extracurricular activities. He was kind of hoping that his more involvement would, would get noticed and he would get accepted. And he was just cranking out the hours. He was stressed. He was worried. Maybe some of you experienced that. He was just like, oh, am I going to get in? Am I going to get in? And so for the next four months while he waited on the final decision, he was very kind of worn out and exhausted. But the guy who was accepted, he had a different approach. He didn't care about his transcript anymore. He's in. And get this, he made some of the best grades he ever made in high school because he started to operate and do his work not to please the teacher. I'm going to write this paper to please the teacher. He's like, you want to write what I want to write on and do what I want to do in school. And he got some of the best grades. And he started taking on extra curricular activities because he started wanting to do things that he wanted to do. So he started a band. He started uh, rock climbing. In fact, he started a, a rock climbing program that still exists 10 years later. He was free. He didn't have to try to get accepted. He was already accepted. He was free to do what he wanted, and he excelled in that new freedom. Now, I wish I could tell you that I actually knew the conclusion whether the guy who was deferred got in. I don't know. And yet it doesn't ruin the story, does it? The point is the guy who was accepted could operate at a position of acceptance. And he was free to live rather than trying to prove himself or justify himself. 
And that's kind of a similar thing we're saying here this morning in the gospel. I'm going to say something. I just want you to be freed after I say this. You can be done with your lifelong pattern of proving yourself. You can be done with your lifelong pattern of proving yourself. In the gospel, acceptance comes before performance. His performance on the cross, his performance in your heart leads to your acceptance. Now you're free to love. Now you're free to serve. Now you're free to work hard, not because you're trying to get his attention. And you know what's going to mess this up, right? You're going to continue to have relationships where people are going to expect you to jump through hoops before they accept you, right? That's the problem, right? But in your heart and your mind, you just got to know you're accepted by a holy God through faith in Jesus. You can relax. You can love people out of that freedom. And I know the world is still going to operate where you have to do this, this, and this to get certain privileges and acceptance. And I, I understand. I know you still have to go to school. I know you still have to work. I'm not throwing any of that out. But you can do it from a disposition that says, I'm accepted by God. And so I can step out. And if I fail, I fail. That's okay. My identity is not wrapped up in my grades. My identity is not wrapped up in my job. My identity is not wrapped up whether my kids behave, Right? There's a lot of different areas now where you can operate. Your whole life can change to know that, hey, you're accepted. You're accepted through the performance of Christ. You're accepted by grace. You're accepted through faith in Jesus. That should free you up to love and to serve and even to work hard. Let's pray. Lord, I just really pray for my brothers and sisters who have been in, in some sense of, of a bondage to maybe their, their parents uh, wanted them to just really crank it out and withheld love and withheld acceptance. And then they just carry that pattern on the rest of their lives. And so, Lord, I just, I just pray that right now if there's any, I don't know what, what the word is, any stronghold or bondage or mental um, blockage, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to know that in Jesus, we are accepted through faith in his finished work. That is the message of the gospel of grace. And for those who feel like they have to prove themselves over and over again, that they could just feel this load come off their shoulders. Take it off the woman in here. Take it off the man in here. That, 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 that pattern of having to prove themselves can be done today that you accept them through their faith in Jesus. And Lord, just empower us to continue to let this love flow out of us now and this service and this hard work to flow out of us, not because we're trying to get you to notice us, because you already notice us in Christ. What great love. In Jesus' name, amen.